Well, good morning, everyone. How are we? Good, good. I'm glad to see all of you here. Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, open them up to the book of Colossians. We're going to be in Colossians 1 and 2 this morning, and we have people coming down the aisles right now who will get a Bible to you if you need it. Just raise your hand. We will get that Bible to you, but we're going to um, spend a good amount of time in God's Word this morning, so you're definitely going to want a Bible. Again, if you left yours at home, um, just grab that and borrow it for the morning. If you don't have a Bible, please keep it and take it home with you. We'd love to you to have a Bible at your home. So before we jump into anything else, um, I need to ask your help. Uh, as we start uh, this weekend's uh, message, uh, this Tuesday through Saturday, we are sending a group of about a little over 100 people up to Camp Harvest for our high school summer camp. And uh, so I would just be asking right now, if you could remember and be diligent, would you pray for our leaders and our students as they go up to camp this week? This is a, a big week on our calendar, and year after year after year, we see lives uh, changed, people saved, decisions made for Christ. So just pray for good weather, uh, pray for um, good air quality, that's a new thing we need to pray for this year, pray for safety, pray for all of those things, but we're really excited for our high schoolers who are going up to camp. And uh, this is a special week because we are finishing, closing our series on how people change. And I've been, really been wrestling for the last few weeks trying to think about how do you end a, a series that we've spent three or four months in talking specifically about change. And I've really loved this series. I think this is one of the best series we've ever done that would have been a really good moment for an amen church. Thank you guys for that. Love you. But I've really been impacted by this. And uh, I've, we've just looked at a lot. We've looked at the call to change. We look like, we've looked at why we need to change. We've looked at how change works. We've looked at what is the enemy of change. We've looked at obstacles in our life revolving change. And we've also talked about what are very, very practical things that you and I can change in. And so as we close, here's the big idea. And this is where I kind of want to land the plane on this series. It's this. It's that your heart is never going to change if you don't embrace the why. Your heart is never going to change if you don't embrace the why. Here's the danger. My fear is, is that we've spent some time together this spring and summer and we're learning about change and talking about change and thinking about change. But if there isn't an embracing the why, which is Jesus Christ, if there isn't a heart motivated, I want to change, nothing is ever going to happen. And so what I'm praying today, I'm praying that today is a good reminder for many of us, but I'm even praying more so that for some in this room, uh, this is going to be a moment where the, the light switch flips, and, and maybe you get for the very first time today why following Jesus is actually the best thing in the entire world. So before we jump into Colossians, I want to start this morning by talking about two mentalities that will keep you from changing. I want to talk about two bad views of Christianity that many of us in this room have from time to time that if we keep with us means we'll never going, we're never going to change. Two enemies of change. Here's the first. Um, one bad mentality is this, that Christianity is just one of many boxes in my life. Do you know what I'm talking about where it's like, man, I come to church every week, my family went to church, I'm a good church person, this is what I do, but my faith and my relationship with Jesus, it just kind of lives in this church box. And it's one of many boxes in my life. I've got a work box. I have a family box. I have a friend box. I have a hobbies box. I have a old college friends box. And I've got like all of these things in my life. Christianity is just part of it. But really what we're saying is, is we live cognitively um, disconnected and isolated lives. 
Here's why that's a problem. Let me just be really honest with you. If you believe that Christianity is just part of who you are, um, Christianity is quickly going to lose its necessity. If Christianity is just one box that lives on the table of your life, here's the truth. We're busy people, aren't we? And we've got a lot of different boxes. Like I remember um, thinking just a couple months ago, man, I am so looking forward to summer because I'm ready for life to slow down and to have a little bit more free time. You know, that doesn't happen, right? Like even summers seem to be more busy and we have activities and our kids have sports and we're running around, we've got school, we've got all of these things. And if Christianity is just part of that, it's never going to lead to impact. Here's a really, really kind of crass way to say it. I've said this before. Do you know that coming to church and listening to me talk is a really lame hobby? Do you know that? Like, there's way more fun things you could be doing at 9.30 on a beautiful Sunday morning than coming to church. And so here's what I'm saying. If your relationship with Jesus stays in this building, or if it's just part of who you are, if it's not impacting your Monday through Saturday, uh, eventually you're going to bail on it altogether because it's not going to be impacting your life. It's not going to lead to change. It's not going to be necessary for you. And then here's the second problem when Christianity just is one of many boxes, it's this, it loses its power. Uh, there is nothing attractive about a faith that stays in a little box. And I think actually the reason that Christianity isn't attractive to more people in our cultures is because we are really bad at PR, right? If we're like, yeah, man, I go to church and I'm a Christian, but it doesn't really impact other areas of my life. And I like to keep my faith private because I'm worried about making the other things in my life awkward. If I bring Christianity into that, guess what the unsaved family, neighbors, friends are going to say, hey, that's great for you. I'm glad for you, but I've already got a lot of boxes on my table and I don't want to take other things off to add that. And if it's not that important, why would I add it all together? Look at me. When we try to isolate our faith to just a portion of our lives, we are doing Christianity a disservice, and it's never going to lead to lasting change. Do me a favor, turn to your neighbor and say, that's not great. Right? We don't want to be that kind of church. We don't want to be those kind of Christians. So that is one mentality we have to be aware of. Here's the second really bad way to think about Christianity that will never lead to change. It's this. It's that Christianity is all about outward appearances. Right? There's a, a Bible term for this that we call legalism, but it's the idea that in order to be a Christian or in order for God to really love you, to actually like you and be pleased with you, you have to live and act a certain way. That God's love for you isn't based on Jesus anymore, but it's on how well you are performing day in and day out. It's this idea that you've got to put a mask on. You've got to look a certain way, act a certain way. You can't let people know what's really going on in your heart. It's awful. In church, listen to me, we fall into this trap all of the time. And there's four reasons why this is such a dangerous view of Christianity. Here's the first. Because a Christianity that's based on outward appearances, it loses its joy. It's miserable. I think the best picture of how legalism works or what it looks like is tryouts in youth sports. I mean, think about it. When your kid goes to a tryout, he is literally being judged on how well he performs. And if he's good enough, he'll get accepted. And if he's not good enough, he'll get cut. All right. And one of the things that I didn't realize when I was growing up is tryouts are way more emotionally brutal on the parents than they are the kids. Did you know that? 
Like, it's awful sending your kids to try out being like, man, I, I really hope you make it and I really hope you're not rejected. And what they do, which is just brutal too, is they have you try out on a field and then the grandstands is filled with the parents just watching the tryout happen. It's like the worst two hours of the entire summer. Remember a couple years ago, uh, Bo was trying out for uh, the Lakeshore Soccer Club, the soccer team, and he's a, he was a good player, and I wasn't too concerned about him making the team. Um, and I was watching the tryouts, watching him play, and I saw one of the dads uh, of one of his teammates from last year. I like the family, great kid, great family, and literally all of the parents are sitting watching the tryouts, and he's just back all by himself, just pacing behind the bleachers. And I'm like, oh, I gotta go check in with him, see how he's doing, and I went up to him, I'm like, hey man, I just wanna let you know your son's playing great. He's a good soccer player. And he just looked at me and like, his eyes were red, he was sweating, he's like, I am like on the verge of having a panic attack right now, like I can't even watch, I'm so nervous. And, and it's like, man, we get this worked up over soccer tryouts. Imagine if that's how we think God views us. Imagine that amount of pressure if every day, man, I've got to be good enough and I've got to be strong enough and I've got to perform well enough or it's not my soccer coach that's going to cut me, God's going to cut me. There is no joy in that brand of Christianity. There's no life. There's no love. It is terrifying. Second thing it loses is it loses its diversity. And uh, here's something that you need to know about me. Every time I'm writing a message, there comes a point in the message where it's like, man, if I tell this story, it's gonna get me in trouble. And by God's grace, my filter is better than it used to be when I'm younger. So I would say like nine times out of 10, I'm like, ah, it's not worth it. Don't tell the story, figure out a different way to communicate it. This week, I couldn't help myself. So I might be getting myself in trouble here, but we'll, uh, we'll see, I'll let you guys be the judge. Um, a couple months ago, uh, one of the deacons at our church, uh, she came up to me and uh, she had that face that was like kind of sheepish, like, Cal, I've got to talk to you about something, but you're not going to like what I have to say, and I'm not sure I want to have this conversation with you. So I was like, hey, what, what's going on? What's up? And she's like, okay, so when we were um, taking offerings a couple weeks ago, when they were passing the offering bags around, someone put in a letter. They, they didn't put in a tithe or an offering. They put in a letter, and the letter was addressed to you. And I didn't know what it was, and I didn't want to bother you if it was something, you know, frivolous. So I opened it up and I read it, and uh, it's definitely addressed to you, and I don't think you're going to like it. And I was like, all right, give me the letter. Let me see it. So she had it with her, and, and she gives it to me, and I open it up. I read the letter. Here's what the letter said. The letter said, Dear Pastor Cal, when are you going to address the fact that so many people in this church are wearing shorts and T-shirts and hats and dressing so shabby? I don't know why you guys are giggling. They were coming after you. I dress great, right? This isn't an indictment on me. This is an indictment on all of you. And, uh, oh, and the best part, signed anonymous, right? Always signed anonymous. So I told the deaconess, I'm like, you know what? Here's what we can do. We're going to throw that letter away. And listen, I am not above critique. I am not against constructive conversations. But if you don't have the respect or courage to sign your name to a critical letter, I don't have to take it seriously. That's kind of a golden rule here at Harvest. And here's what I want you to hear about the heart behind that letter. Do you hear it? It's, I want you to be like me. I want you to dress like me. 
I want you to look like me. I want you to view church in the exact same way that I view church. And what breaks my heart about that letter is rather than someone coming to church and be like, man, isn't it cool how many different kinds of people come together unified in the name of Jesus Christ and are worshiping? No, it's looking at others, judging them, being like, I want them to act and dress more like me. It's taking away its diversity. We tend to be the most legalistic about the things we're really passionate about. Here's the third thing it loses. It loses its depth. All right, there's a very famous story in the Old Testament where Samuel, he's going to anoint the second king of Israel. And he's just told, you got to go to the house of Jesse and you're going to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be king. And Samuel arrives at Jesse's house and the first son he sees, he's the oldest son, he's strong, he's handsome, he's good looking. And Jesse in his mind is like, this has to be the guy. This so looks like the next king of Israel. And immediately God speaks to him and here's what he says. So, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Okay, here's the problem with making Christianity all about appearances, is that it only deals with the issues that other people can see. So what legalism does is it makes me very, very good at playing the game, and it makes me very good at looking good on the outside, right? I'm not swearing, and I'm not um, drinking too much, and all of the sin issues that other people might be able to see, I can clean up, but in my heart... I'm just as angry, I'm just as jealous, I'm just as bitter, I'm just as prideful as I've ever been. And it's like, man, so I'm coming to church. I've been coming to church every week because that's what a good Christian does. I'm good at that, but I'm still the same jerk that I've been for the last decade, right? There's not a heart that's being transformed. Nothing's happening. We're just playing a game of outward appearances. And then here's the most heartbreaking is that it loses Jesus, doesn't it? If God's love for me is based on how I look or how well I'm doing or my performance, why do I need a savior anymore? I'm putting my hope in my own effort, in my own strength. Legalism is ultimately a rejection of the gospel. It's a rejection of God. It's a rejection of Jesus. And it will never lead to a change in your heart. And it will also lead to a life of hiding and pretending and feeling all alone. All right, these are two mentalities that we've got to be afraid of and worry that we're not falling into. And so this is what brings us to Colossians 1. So here's the quick backdrop. Paul is writing to a church that he planted, he started, and then he pastored at. But after he left to go start another ministry, word got back to him that this church is falling into these exact problems we just talked about. So the book of Colossians is Paul writing this young church, trying to correct them, trying to bring them back in line with the gospel and make sure they don't stray away from the faith. So look at Colossians 1.15. Paul is going, I want to start here. Paul is just talking about Jesus and he's reminding them how great Jesus is. This is some of the most beautiful language in all of the Bible in regards to Jesus. Here's what he says. He says, he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. Uh, He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. 
Okay, here's what Paul's getting at. Paul is trying to show us that our hearts will change when we believe genuinely these two things. Here's the first, that everything is about and for Jesus. Do you see what he's saying? He's like, listen, everything exists for him. Everything was made by him. Look at verse 16. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Listen, that in everything, he might be preeminent. That word preeminent, it's a fancy word for first place. He's saying that all of reality exists for Jesus, was made by Jesus, and that he might be first in all things. Here's what Paul's doing. Do you see it? He's blowing up this idea that Jesus can be confined to a box. He's like, listen, Jesus isn't a box that sits on the table of your life. He is the table. He is the foundation that everything else in your life rests on. Listen to me. Our biggest problem, the thing that is wrong in our hearts that leads to every other wrong thing in our hearts is we believe the lie that we can exist independently from God. That we don't need God's power, that we don't need God's help, that we don't exist for God, that we don't need to worship God and our way, our plans, our thoughts are what's best for us. The gospel, God's word, listen to what God is doing when he gives us his word. He's inviting us into reality. Any belief that we exist for ourselves as spiritual free agents is an illusion. You and I have a purpose. We don't have to wonder what it is. We were created to know, love, and reflect Jesus. We were created for him. And by the way, all of this was made possible because the one who created everything and who is first in everything, he humbled himself to the point of being a servant and died that we might be reconciled to God. You see there in verse 19? It says, for in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So he is not only Lord, he's not only King, he's not only creator, he's not only first place, but he is our savior and our hope. Amen. It's all about Jesus. So heart change begins to happen when we begin to see Jesus as the table, the rest of the boxes in our life sit on. So here's what I mean. Let's get really practical. That means that when I enter the box, which is family relationships, I've got to think for myself, all right, how do I glorify God? How do I make much of Jesus? How can he be first in my family relationships? Right? The thing that makes family so hard is we know all of each other's weaknesses, don't we? And the weaknesses of our family tend to drive us the most crazy. So it's like, how do I hang in there? How do I be gracious? How do I speak the truth when I need to speak the truth? How do I forgive? How do I love? How do I deal with my bonkers nieces and nephews, right? Like all of it, there's a way to be patient and kind and loving and gracious where it's not just about our family, but it's about honoring the Lord in how I interact with my family. All right, then I move to my work box and it's like, all right, there's a way to honor the Lord in work, in my integrity, in my honesty, in how I interact with my coworkers, in how my attitude and my disposition is around the office. There's a way where it's like, man, I can know, love, and reflect Jesus in the work box, right? When I'm with my friends, how do I impact them? How do I encourage them? How do I help them in their walk with the Lord? And at church, right, do you come here and you're like, man, this room exists for me right now. And the songs have to be good and the message has to be impactful. Or do you come to church thinking like, man, who, do, who can I meet here for the first time? 
Who can I encourage? Who can I pray with? Like, can I ask you a question? Have you come here this morning with the expectation that you're going to pray with another follower of Jesus? Wouldn't that be amazing if we all had that expectation? That, man, I'm going to encourage and pray and lift up the family of God because we are in this together and Jesus loves the church and the way that I love Jesus is I'm going to love the church as well. Honoring Jesus becomes the foundation for everything. Okay, we have to believe that it's all about Jesus, but here's the next thing we have to believe, and this might even be more important. It's this. We have to believe that Jesus is deeply committed to my joy. That Jesus is deeply committed to my joy. And do me a favor, turn over uh, one chapter to Colossians 2. And just to set the backdrop really quick, what's happening in the church of Colossians, there's a group of people, the Bible calls them Judaizers. But, but here's what's happening. A group of Jewish people have entered this Gentile church and they're false teachers. And what they're trying to convince the Colossian church is, listen, you are saved kind of by faith in Jesus. That's part of it. But if you really want God to love you, if you really want to be saved, you also have to become more Jewish because we're God's people. Jesus was Jewish and we have it right. So you need to look like us. It was this idea of legalism. They wanted the Colossian church to become more Jewish. So what they were doing is they were saying, man, you've got to eat with the same dietary restrictions that we have. You have to eat with a kosher diet. And the Galatian church is like, man, I just want a cheeseburger, right? Like, why does Christianity, why is it messing with what I eat? This doesn't make any sense. I was told it was about Jesus and salvation and love and forgiveness. Now I'm being told that cheese and meat are wrong. That's nonsense, right? Um, okay, so maybe I shouldn't say this, but uh, so two of the last four or five years, our church has taken a group to Israel. And uh, I love going to Israel. It's an amazing time. The tour is great. They take care of us. We go with a Jewish tour company and uh, we have amazing food everywhere we go. But because it's a Jewish company, they do make us eat by kosher rules. And uh, what happens is, is we get to Jerusalem is kind of the last stop of our tour. And Chris and Carolyn have gone with us both times too. And both times, Chris and Carolyn, Mary and I have snuck out and we know where a secret pizza joint is in one of the alleys of Jerusalem that's owned by Arabs. And we just go there and get, eat as much pepperoni pizza as physically possible. It's like, man, like I love Israel and, and I love it all, but man, I just want pepperoni pizza so bad. It's maybe my favorite part of the whole thing. That's not true. It's up there. Um, the other thing they were doing though, listen to me. The other thing they were saying is, is you've got to follow our festivals. You've got to follow our religious calendar. So the Colossians like, we don't understand this. We didn't grow up in the Jewish culture. Like this is all super confusing. And Paul addresses this in Colossians 2.16. Look what he says. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regards to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Here's what Paul's saying. Don't listen to them. Don't let them cast judgment on you because you don't follow their traditions. And then he says something interesting in verse 17. I want to read it again. He says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Here's what he's saying. He's saying the feasts, the festivals, the calendar, the dietary restrictions, those aren't bad things. In fact, they're actually good things but they're just a shadow. The substance is Jesus. Well, what Paul's saying is, is these good things that the Jews are trying to make ultimate things, they were just meant to point us to Jesus all along. And if you have Jesus, you're free from these restrictions. He's saying, don't get caught up in the shadows. 
when the substance is Jesus. So here's the logical thread I want to pull between Colossians 1 and 2. If everything is truly about Jesus and for Jesus and held together in Jesus, listen to me, then everything that is good in this world and is good in your life is meant to point you to the substance, which is Jesus. The good things in your life are shadows that are meant to draw you to the best thing, which is Jesus. Okay, so here's what we have to believe. All good things point to Jesus. James 1, 16 James writes this, he says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Okay, here's what he's saying. The things that we love most in life are actually designed to draw our hearts to the best thing, which is Jesus. So I just did a a homework assignment for myself this week. And I'm like, what are the things that I love most in my life? All right, and number one on that list was my wife, Mary. And I love our marriage. She is the the best thing that has happened to me. But guess what? Do you know that marriage in the Bible is a picture of our relationship to Jesus Christ? That even marriage is a shadow that's supposed to point us to Jesus, that my love for Mary and my commitment to Mary and how well I know Mary and the intimacy we share and just the desire to be together and to be best friends, that all of that is pointing to the reality that we have a Savior who loves us just as holy, just as fully, that knows us and chooses us and loves us. And by the way, He loves Mary and He loves me better than I can love my wife because my heart is still corrupted with sin. And I'm not perfect and I'm still selfish. Jesus' love never fails and it's perfect. It's all pointing back to Jesus. And I'm like, all right, what's next? Well, how about my kids? Like, I just love my kids. I think they're the best. I think they're so fun. I think they're so cool. Like, you know that feeling where it's like, man, I love them so ferociously. I would do anything for my children. Do you know that God calls us his sons and daughters? That we are his children? that he loves us so fiercely, that he sent himself to die, that he gave himself up, that we might be reconciled back to him when we didn't deserve it, when we said, dad, I don't want anything to do with you. He chased us down and gave us everything so that we could be reconciled. The love I have for my kids, that I want the best for them and I want them to have a great life and I would do anything for them. It's a shadow that means to point us to the love that Jesus has for us. All right, well, those two are obvious. Let's get into another one. Uh, Maybe friends and family is next. So here's a question. Um, Are there any extroverts in the room? Anyone just love being around people? Raise your hand if that's you. All right, I see see a few hands. Okay, so you'll feel this strongly if you're an extrovert. Do you guys know that feeling when everyone is together? Maybe it's at like a family Christmas or maybe it's a bonfire on a Friday night. But you know that feeling when everyone's together Everyone's relaxed, everyone's happy, everyone's having a good time. There's no conflict and everyone's just enjoying one another's relationship. And there's that feeling that's like, man, this is just so right and I love this. You guys know what I'm talking about? Give me a thumbs up if you're like, that's the best. Right, like I love that, that's the best. Do you know why our hearts long for that and desire that? Because God is a relational God. Did you know that that he doesn't exist all by himself, but he exists in the Trinity, which means there's three persons of the Godhead that live in perfect relationship with one another. There's no brokenness. There's no conflict. They love each other. They support each other. They care for each other. They are God together. And, And then here's another cool thing. Do you know how the Bible ends? Do you know the Bible ends with all of us at a party together? 
that there's this great wedding feast where we are gathered together in perfect relationship, no conflict, and we are celebrating the victory of Jesus over sin and the enemy once and for all. Doesn't that sound amazing? So even that like, man, I just love it when people are together and they're happy. That's a shadow pointing us to the ultimate moment when that's going to be our reality in Christ. All good things point to Jesus. Right? What about work? Man, I just love going to work. I love being productive. I love being successful. Well, guess what that points us to? The fact that we've been created for a purpose. That God has given us the, the, the role to steward creation, to bless others, to move creation forward, that we can know God, love God, partner with God as we work to steward what he has given us. The best things in our life are shadows that point us to Jesus. Then here's the big one. We also have to believe this, that worshiping Jesus makes the good things in my life even better. That worshiping Jesus actually makes all of my life better. A couple passages of scripture I wanna read that, that tease this out. Galatians 5.1, I love this. It says, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. See what Paul's saying? He goes, Jesus wants you to be free. He made you free so you could live free. Don't fall back into the things that enslave you. Guess what enslaves us? Selfishness enslaves us. Sin enslaves us. Idolatry enslaves us. Legalism enslaves us. He's like, there's all of these things you can fall back into that, that take away your freedom. No, no, love Jesus. Live for him. Put your hope in him. He wants you to live a life that is free. John 10, Jesus says this himself. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life, hear it, and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Did you know that one of the things the Pharisees couldn't stand about Jesus is that so many people liked him and were having fun hanging out with him? They're like, he must be a sinner. Way too many people are happy when they're around him. Like, right, how screwed up is that? But like Jesus was a joy-filled person. He wants the same for us. And here's a great one. Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Okay, here's how I want to wrap up this series on change. It's that worshiping Jesus brings a depth to our life that makes everything better. Let me play this out. So, what is it, 10 o'clock right now? In a couple hours, we're gonna be having lunch. And let's just say for the sake of this analogy that the plan for lunch is you're gonna grill cheeseburgers on the grill and just have a beautiful lunch out in the sun. Um, you have two choices. You can eat the burger and you can be like, wow, that was a really, really good cheeseburger. I enjoyed that. I love that. What's next in my day? Or you have the choice to eat the cheeseburger in worship to Jesus and you eat the burger and you're like, man, this tastes amazing. Isn't God awesome? Like how cool is it that God can take things like wheat and mustard seeds and tomatoes and we put that on a charred piece of cow and it tastes amazing. Like how awesome is God? Like what a blessing that he gives us taste and he's given us creation to enjoy and that he's providing for my hunger. Like how crazy is it that God gives us hunger as a reminder every single day we need him. Guess what? You're going to enjoy the meal more because there's a spiritual depth to it that's like, wow, God is good. 
right? You might be on the boat on Spring Lake this afternoon, and you can be like, man, I love my boat, and I love the beautiful weather, and it's great. Or you can be like, wow, the heavens declare the glory of God. And in God's mind, if all things are held together by Jesus, that means Jesus is part of holding together this beautiful moment. And the water is his and the sky is his and technology that allows big pieces of metal to move on water and not sink like a rock. That's because he's good and it's common grace and he loves us. This whole thing was orchestrated by him because he's good and he wants me to enjoy life. What a great God. Right, friends. Right? There's no better type of friendships than friendships that are anchored around Jesus Christ. Like friendships where you can be laughing and listening to music and joking around with each other one minute and the next minute you're in tears and you're praying for each other because you're talking about fears and worries and struggles and you're in it together. It adds a depth to friendship that this world cannot compete with. Right, marriage, man, when it's like, man, my marriage is not just about me and it's not just about my wife, but we exist to glorify God. And we can partner together in ministry and we can do some great things. And even in how we just love each other, we are a witness for what a marriage based on Jesus can look like. That's an awesome thing. And listen, even the hard things, even the suffering, even the scary things, I'm not alone. I don't serve a God who's absent or forgetful, but he's here, he's with me, and he's orchestrating all things together for my good. Church, here's what I am pleading with you today about. If you believe the lie that following Jesus is somehow an obstacle to joy or a limit in your life, your heart is never going to change. And you're never going to be excited to come here and to lift high the name of Jesus in worship because you're still missing it. Jesus didn't just come to save us for eternity. He came to give us the most joy-filled life today. And when we believe that, when we see it, when we recognize it, Man, can God do amazing things. And so what I want to do to end this series is I want to get out of the way and I want to show you guys a video of a family that has lived this out in a really cool way. Check out this video. Definitely, I would say going into the marriage, Sean was um, my idol. Marriage to me was going to be all about me. I thought that marriage was supposed to make me happy. So as um, my happiness was no longer being fulfilled and um, I didn't feel like I was getting attention from my husband and um, just all those worldly desires, I started um, looking elsewhere to try to fulfill those desires. Sin is very powerful, and um, Satan puts, you know, thoughts into your head and lies to you, and um, you don't recognize where it's coming from. And um, before I knew it, I had um, broken my marriage vows. Definitely knew I made a huge mistake. I had to repent. I knew I needed to bring it to into the light. A couple days later was when I told him that he needed to come home from work because I had something that I had to tell him. My response to it was fury. Every resolution in my mind was that our marriage was over. I responded with anger and I responded with get out. 
And I would say that that is the day when I truly um, hit rock bottom. And um, it was the first time in my life I was on my knees. I had to look to the Lord. While Holly was pursuing and embracing Christ during this time, I was embracing my anger. I was asking for God to restore my marriage, but I was asking him to restore it because it's what I wanted, what I needed to make myself feel better, to feed myself as my idol. I had, you know, grown up hearing about Jesus dying on the cross for my sins, but it wasn't until this point in my life where it actually hit home for me. Jesus lived his life to suffer in the place of what I just did. And um, it was very humbling and very real. And um, just this overwhelming sense of gratitude. It was so instrumental to just the growth in our marriage and just learning what it looked like to be a godly husband and a godly wife. It threatened a year later to utterly destroy all the progress we had made. My selfish heart and my stubbornness and my inability to find what it looked like to submit my life fully to Christ. It's true, my sin found me out. I remember um, just sitting there crying and um, telling Sean, I am so mad at you, but I don't have a choice. I have to show you grace. Um, the grace that Jesus showed for me uh, is way more than what I am needing to show you right now. For my wife to respond with grace softened my heart. That evening, I I went home and I needed to accept Christ's grace for me fully. And um, I didn't cry, I actually wept. Uh, and I think that's the first time in my life I can say that I actually wept. Gave not part of my life to Christ, but all of it. Finally submitted. And uh, that's the night that I know 100% that I was saved. Looking back on it, if I had to experience that time period again to be able to be where God has us now, I would do it in a heartbeat because this is so much better and so, it's hard to even articulate how much better it is. Well, and we didn't know. We didn't know what we were missing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like you don't know what you're missing until you experience like the grace of God and the power of God moving in your life. I think that if it wasn't for that season, um, I would still be selfish, like living for my feelings, um, you know, very caught up in the world. It was in that season where I finally saw that only Jesus can satisfy. You hear that like Jesus is close to you 
during your most, you know, your rock bottom, I've never felt his presence in that way. At that point, nobody could help me besides the Lord. It was all necessary and it was all like the beginning of like freedom. You see that in in life change. And I think that's what we've been seeing for the past 10 years. We weren't previously seeing that because we didn't have the power to change. When we both submitted, that's when we we saw the change and we had, you know, the Holy Spirit and the power to do so. I want to be able to use what Satan intended for harm, like to bring God glory. Everything that the Lord redeems belongs to him. So like our past, our present, our future. I never would have thought 10 years ago that his role would be a pastor. Like never, ever would I have thought that. That we would be- Still hard to believe. Yeah. (laughs) It's crazy to reflect back and um, just see the change in that way. Um, Just everything. I feel just every part of our life, I feel like is different. We saw our need for Jesus, you know, those small steps of obedience. And with that, like he changed us, like he changed our hearts. Like we didn't do anything. Now, 10 years later, it's like you're looking at what the Lord did. I don't ever want to lose my perspective of my wife that I got 10 years ago. God gifted me a wife who confessed and admitted her sin to me. I had to get caught for God to have already touched her heart, for her to already know Jesus. Her reaction quite immediately was forgiveness. Like, I'm so mad at you, but I've been forgiven of so much and Jesus has forgiven me. I'm going to choose to forgive you and you're and you're forgiven and we're going to get through this. For God to have used my wife as the vehicle of my salvation. I literally can't think of my wife or look at my wife without seeing Jesus. That gift is the most precious thing that I've gotten out of all this and remembering where we were 10 years ago and and what the Lord did to save me not only brings me back running back to my wife but it sends me right back to the foot of the cross it sends me right back to the Lord and to be able to literally live day to day and choose to love the vessel that Christ used to save me like I don't ever want to lose that perspective I'd also love to be 10 years from now and be able to watch this. (laughs) (laughs) Like we watched the old one and be like, oh my goodness, we were babies. We were so like early still in our faith. We had so much to learn and this is what I've learned now. And and this makes more sense. And, And to have the perspective 10 years from now that we have right now, like, like that's, that's what I want. Hope isn't found in our circumstances or anything besides the Lord and submitting your life and being obedient even when it's hard and 
that's where the hope is. And then he will take it from there and he will do like the heavy lifting and you just get to watch him work and the people around you get to watch him work. You just have to be willing to like start, just start with a small step. And um, it's just amazing to, to let him do, let him do his job, you know? So 